Final message in our series, Spiritual Conversations with Folks Who Believe Differently. Again, we're not looking at other faiths, although that could include that. Some of you might recall uh, many weeks ago, in the first message of the series, I talked about a kind of a, a, kind of a tunnel vision um, that, that narrows, I think, and um, artificially and, and wrongly narrows the act of sharing our faith to kind of what, what I would call a one-and-done sales pitch, right? And this is kind of what I've been driving at throughout this series is as we share our faith, as we share the good news of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom, um, one-and-done sales pitches aren't, I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture, I, I just don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Um, sometimes this one-and-done sales pitch driven by guilt, maybe a sense of obligation, maybe our own agendas, right? If we can get this person to agree with our theology, then we feel better about what we believe about God. We all got our own agendas, right? Maybe, maybe we're trying to earn some heavenly extra credit. Were you one of those students always work? No? Yeah, right. But instead, out of love, right, we're sharing our experience and our understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is and, right, and how someone can relate to him, right? That's, that's our call, is to connect people up with Jesus Christ, who is that perfect representation of God and who can lead them to our Heavenly Father. Bottom line was we're not selling Jesus to anybody. In the movie The Big Kahuna, maybe some of you saw this quite a while back, Phil the Salesman confronts a young, zealous Christian co-worker, Bob, about his motives for heavy-handed proselytizing, right? Telling people that they need Jesus on, on the job. This is what he says. This is Phil the salesman. He says, it doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. That makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are just to find out for no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Now, I don't want you to read too far into this, right? The big kahuna is not our guiding light, right? But it's a movie that kind of shines a light on our culture and who we are and how we operate. Um, Again, don't read too far into this. We are called to represent God, right? We all know this. We are called to be his representatives. I mean, you could call it a marketing rep, but that's kind of a slimy kind of word. But as Christians, we need to treat others as human beings, right? Not as objects of a sales pitch or a marketing ploy. And as we get to know people and truly care about them, we're able to make that authentic connection between their lives, their broken song, and a Savior who can address that broken song, right? That's our call is to make that connection. The goal of what we share is not, let's get you to heaven. The goal is, I love for you to meet my Jesus because he really loves you. We're introducing to people. We're introducing people to him, right? He's the real deal. Meaningful life, abundant life, a hope-filled life. I'm going to say this very carefully. Don't overhear it. (laughs) Jesus is not a way to heaven. Jesus is a way to God. And in fact, back when Thomas asked him, right, we don't know the way. A lot of people have read that passage like Jesus was going to give him a road map, right, how to get to earth to heaven. Like, I don't know what that road map would look like. 
But when we look at it very closely, what Jesus is really talking about is, you know the way. The way is through me to the Father. It's a relational thing. If you know me, you know the Father. I am the way to the Father. Here's what a loveless sales pitch looks and feels like. Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you've done this. And when I say all this, I'm going to kind of go through a little chart here. Not necessarily evil and beautiful or bad and good. I just think one is more, one option is more beautiful. And I, I, let's just leave it at that. I think a loveless sales pitch looks a little bit like a confrontational speech. We talked about that, right? The unchurched, their comment was, if they would just shut up and listen, instead of dominating the conversation, we could get somewhere. But they have an agenda. And I'm no longer a person. I'm their agenda. Quick sales pitch that demands an instant answer. And if you give the wrong answer or the wrong, wrong response, that ends the conversations. Conversation's over. I will move along. I don't care about you anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else to pitch Jesus to. And the tone of that sales pitch is very paternalistic. Almost like a child-parent relationship. Right? Impatience, right? To close the deal versus the patience that God displays. Working with us until we're ready to say yes. Never coercing us, never controlling us, but quietly persuading us with an incredible love. And here's the tricky one. Great commission, great commandment. Don't misread this. It's not an either-or kind of thing. But I'll tell you what, sharing the good news without love, which is the great commission without the great commandment, is probably the single biggest black eye that the church has given itself in its entire history. Sharing the love of God without love, right? You convert or I will kill you. <laughs> and then last week we looked at this idea, doing good things for people or doing good things with people. The first one tends toward a transformation imposed from the outside, right? You will feel this way, and you will respond this way. Because we did this for you, you must stop doing that and start doing this. You owe us now. Rather than a group of equals in God's eyes addressing the inequalities in our lives. And all of these things kind of lead to a mindset that prioritizes a future kingdom over a present kingdom, Kind of along the lines of, you can be my neighbor in heaven when you're not so messed up and broken, but not now, right? I'll love you when we're in heaven. But as we've seen, Jesus went along sharing the good news of the kingdom incarnationally, like presently, in the present, in the now, right? He noticed the outcasts. He prayed for the confused. He listened rather than having all the answers. He loved the unlovable. He welcomed the lost, and he didn't just preach and teach. We looked at this last week. He didn't just teach and preach about the kingdom, right? He was the kingdom. He was the message, right? The kingdom of God in the flesh, dwelling among us, full of truth and grace, communicating God himself in everything he did. Not only in what he said, but what he did because he was the message. But at some point, God calls us to explain, right? 
right? A lifestyle, I, I know we, I, I have a book, in fact, sitting, sitting on my shelf, Lifestyle Evangelism. The idea being that you go and mow your neighbor's lawn and you do wonderful things for, for all the people around your life, and, and that's a lifestyle evangelism with the idea, and I don't think this was the idea, but we kind of take it this way, they'll figure out God. I don't need to explain. My loving actions will explain everything. But words eventually need to be spoken, right, to properly understand the relational practices that we've been looking at. I notice and I pray and I listen and I ask questions and I listen to the opinions of others. I serve you because I'm a changed person, right? And I'm a changed person because of this guy, Jesus Christ. Let me introduce you to him. And the relational practices we've looked at all gently move the conversation forward at the Holy Spirit's pace without it becoming a sales pitch, right? And again, I don't, I want to make sure I emphasize this. We are not waiting years and years and years to make the pitch. We are looking, actively looking, listening for that opening, right? We're not putting it off. This is not an exercise in putting off the pitch, putting off, telling them why I'm doing this thing. This is not what this is all about. This is about giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity for you to share why you are so different, why you have, how you have been transformed, right? Hope that all makes sense. And so two things this morning, two questions. First question, why is the arrival of God's kingdom such good news, right? We've been looking at all these practices, and today we're going to land on the final practice, sharing the good news, right? We've been talking, noticing, praying, listening. Now we're going to share. We're going we're to get down to it, right? Why is the arrival of God's kingdom such incredibly good news? Because it is good news, and that is the good news that the God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ and continues to build stream and momentum under the power of the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom has arrived, and not here entirely, now but not yet, But because of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see and experience aspects of heaven that were unaccessible before now. So what does his kingdom have that we're currently missing that makes it the arrival of it such incredibly good news? And the second question we're going to address this morning, who is worthy of this kingdom? Because if no one else is worthy but us, (laughs) because we are worthy, uh, why talk about it? Why share, right? But I know as we sing this song, and I love this song, and I did not grow up with this song. It's kind of a new song for me, and it's a response, call and response kind of song, right? We sing, is he worthy, and how do we respond? He is. And my thought is, if he is worthy of all honor and praise, then there can never be a person who is unworthy of him. That would be ridiculous. Does that make sense? If he is worthy of all honor and praise, nobody can be unworthy of him. Nobody. I want to start with a parable we looked at a couple weeks ago. I'm just going to jump through it. Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep. And then I'm going to jump back to Luke 4, and Jesus visits his hometown. That's where we're going to kind of camp out there. But very, very quickly, the parable of the lost sheep. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Luke chapter 15, verse 4 says this. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So Jesus represents, or presents this question to a group of religious leaders kind of sitting on one side of the room and a group of sinners and tax collectors kind of sitting on the other side of the room because they are not mixing, right? They're like at one of our fellowships, all the men are over here and all the women are over here. It's like, Psh. And they're all sitting together at a meal, which in all cultures, we know this, in ours it's true, and particularly in their culture, right? Having a meal together was the epitome of love and fellowship, 
and hospitality in a very, very unforgiving land, a very, very unforgiving climate. This, so hospitality, fellowship, that became like the highest mark of a beautiful human being, that they were hospitable and they were welcoming in a very, very harsh climate. Let me keep reading. And when he finds that sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Simple fact, we all know this. Because this this passage is very easy to miss or to misinterpret. Like the 99, nobody's cheering for them. What are, what are, what's going on with, with the 99? Um, and why, is it, why it, there doesn't seem to be cheering for the, just, just for the one, right? But we all know this. Recovery of, of an object that is in danger of being lost, once it's found, just brings an intense rush of joy that's not really comparable to the thing that was never in danger, right? It's... We like it. It's wonderful. But when it's in danger and we get it back, it's like, oh, right? When a child is sick and they get well, it's not like we ignored the other three kids, right? We continue to love them. But this one child needed care and assistance and love more than. So there was a, this is what it really is talking about, right? When, you, when you're in danger of losing something, there's just such an intense joy. And, and Christ is saying, heaven was in danger of losing some of you. Right? And when you make the right decision, all heaven cheers because they know, they've watched, they understand the temptations that you're experiencing, and they're cheering. They're cheering. They're cheering. And all heaven rejoices when we make the right choice. As with all true parables, this parable demands a response. The question is, how valuable is that one lost sheep? You have two options. Search and rescue operation or no search and rescue operation. How valuable is that one lost sheep? You got 99. How hungry are you? And Jesus makes sure that we arrive at the right answer. Yes, one lost sheep is worthy of any inconvenience, any sacrifice. Interesting to note in this parable There's no indication. Again, I kind of mentioned this a little bit before. The 99 are not suddenly in danger, right? And the 99, it's not like they get no cheers. And it's not like the one gets all the cheers. My guess is the 99, when that one was found, they were part of the cheering crowd, right? One of our lost brothers and sisters who we have almost lost has come back. And I think they're all cheering. Doesn't say that. But here's the the issue this morning. That's not what we find in ancient Israel. (laughs) The 99 are angry because they have to share God with the lost knucklehead who keeps getting lost again and again. And God seems to be paying a whole lot more attention to him or her than to us. Exact same attitude as the older brother in the parable of the lost son. What about us? What about us? So let's jump to Luke 4. Let's find out about that. Tackle our first question. Why is the arrival of God's kingdom such incredibly good news? This is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. Luke is going to a great length here to make sure that you understand that he's been traveling around all around Galilee. It's kind of the region around the, the town of Nazareth, kind of a county, however way you want to say it, a, a, an administrative district. And he is hugely popular, right? Everybody loves Jesus. Every, every synagogue he goes to, they're praising him. They're amazed at his teaching. Now, here's a fact, right? Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, so when he visited the synagogues, he would naturally, understandably, be asked to teach. And that's exactly what we find here in the next couple of verses. Verse 16 to 17, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written. Now, let me just stop for a moment. A little bit of background here. In the synagogue, there was no professional preacher that you paid to come up and deliver a message each week. Um, the, the president of the synagogue, he had a name, can't remember the name, it's a Jewish name, probably don't pronounce it right anyway, we'll call him the president. He would invite any distinguished person present to speak and a discussion and a talk would follow. This is the way the synagogue operated on a Saturday. So the selected text was most likely prearranged. Right? It's not like he ended Jesus a text and he decided, mm, bam, you ever do that with your Bible? <laughs> I'm going to study today here. No, that's not what was going on. Most scholars believe that Jesus was invited. The president knew him. Jesus was well known. And to have him in your synagogue was like, woo, you're going to have a packed day that day, right? Turn that number into your administrator, not the number last week, right? The day Jesus visits. And here's what would happen. As the scripture was read, and understand that ancient Hebrew was no longer understood, they had spent several generations in Babylon. Seventy years represents several generations, if you think about it. The ancient Hebrew, which was no longer widely understood, was translated. It was translated by what was called the Targumist. Right? He would translate into the Aramaic or the Greek what were called Targums. Right? They were translations, Greek and Aramaic translations of the ancient Hebrew that nobody understood anymore. They understood Aramaic and they understood Greek. So these Targums were translations of the ancient Hebrew. Right? And there's, this is the way it would happen. If the speaker chosen was going to teach from the law, he would read one verse and the one verse would be translated. One verse of law one verse translated. But if he was reading from the, the, the prophets, which was the other option, occasionally the Psalms, but at some point, at different points, the Psalms were not encouraged to be used in the synagogue because they drew away from the law, right? The Psalms seemed to offer ways around the law, but ugh. so at different times, they were actually in, encouraged not to use the Psalms in the synagogue, whatever. So anyway, when, it, when, a, when a prophet, when, when, when a, a guest speaker like Jesus Christ wants to speak about a prophet, he would go three lines at a time, and there would be translated three lines. And exactly, this is exactly what we see what Jesus does. He's going to quote, the quote that we had here this morning, two verses from chapter 61 of Isaiah and one verse from chapter 58 of Isaiah, right? He's taking exactly three verses from different places, and this is what they would do, and then there would be a connection between these two verses, and they would put them together, and then he would go teach. But it would be three verses at a time. And here's what we have. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is 61, verses 1 and 2. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let me just say something very quickly before I go on. 
We need to understand the poor as a range of issues relating to Mediterranean world status, right? It wasn't just poverty, although that definitely was an issue. But in this context, you could be poor in education, you could be poor in gender, right? You're not a man. Family heritage, religious purity, right? People of the land, they simply didn't have the time or wherewithal to to follow all 600 some odd, right? Even vocation, right? If you were a tanner working with dead animal skin, you're out. You don't get to come to worship. Jesus came to make us free. And he doesn't stop with the spiritual, right? He also addresses the physical. Listen to this, verses 20, 21. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That is an indication that he's ready to teach, right? We have an, a new, well, she's been here a year, and she hopefully is going to be elected next week. We have an NDI chair. That's why, why they're called chairs, right? You teach from a chair. You sit down in, in Jewish culture instead of standing up here like I'm doing. It'd be great if I could sit down, but no, whatever, okay. Uh, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ wants to release us. Right? He wants to release those captives to addictions even, even today, addictions like alcohol, drugs, food, pornography, money, media, selfishness. We're addicted to these things. And Jesus wants to free those held captive by sickness and disease today, not later, not in a future kingdom. He wants to do it now. He wants to free the oppressed today. And who are the oppressed? The orphan, the widow, the powerless, the voiceless, the foreigner, the overly religious, and the impoverished, of course. See, Jesus is all about freedom, right? And he wants us to not only be free, but to share that freedom with everybody we know. This is easily one of the, con- the congregation's favorite passages, right? They love this passage that Luke has Jesus reading from that day in Nazareth. There's no doubt in their mind that the passage was for them. All spoke well of him. <coughs> that would have hurt. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his lips, that came from his lips. Right? All the synagogues initially spoke well of Jesus, including Nazareth. But then Jesus interpreted their favorite passage, and he didn't interpret it the way they interpreted it. He interpreted it differently, and they were not happy at all. They were not happy in the least. Really, there are two issues going on here, and I want to hit the first one, but then we're going to hit the biggie, right? The first one, I kind of made them pause and reconsider. All spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, and then, they would, then there was a pause. Oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 time out. Isn't this Joseph? Son of jo- or, uh, son, Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, isn't, like, he's one of us, right? You've heard this idea, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Famous people don't come from your neighborhood. They come from the big city. They come from far away because we can't produce that kind of genius in this local community. That has to come from on high, from outside, from somewhere else. And when they arrive, we, ah, guest speaker, oh, they're amazing, See, but this is something that Jesus had to address for the Jewish people to understand who he was. And the answer to the question is no. 
No, Jesus was not simply the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. And that makes all the difference if you're to believe what he says about his heavenly father, our heavenly father. Just as the voices at the river had declared, right, in the temptation or in Jesus' baptism, just as his family tree had revealed at the beginning of Matthew, right, just as Satan himself admitted at the temptations, this was the Son of God. But here's what made them all so angry. That just made them pause, right? That, that, that just kind of, wait, wait a minute, but, but now they're going to get upset because Jesus isn't going to interpret it the way they want it interpreted. They want it to be all about them. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Basically, what's going on here, do for us what you've been doing all over Galilee. We've been hearing about you, Jesus. What are we, chopped liver? I love that phrase. My wife always asks me that. What am I, chopped liver? You were raised here, boy. We deserve better. That was the attitude of Nazareth to their I don't know if you call them their favorite son, but one of their sons who had gone on and done well. Like, wait a minute. We raised you. We poured into you. And then things turned from bad to really bad. Jesus continues, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a fear, severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Right? Now their ears are pricking up. But to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I don't know if you caught that. The widow is not an Israelite and she's not from Israel. And she's getting God's grace. Jesus continues. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And again, in case you miss it, Naaman is not an Israelite from Israel. He's a dreaded, hated Gentile, just like the widow. Let's connect the dots here. Jesus is saying this. I've come with the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom, but it's not just for Nazareth. And it's not just for Israel. And, and again, this is going to shock you. This is going to anger you. This is going to scandalize you. This is probably going to lead to my death. If Israel turns out to be as selfish and narrow-minded as you are, Nazareth, oh, I pray for you. Because she'll forfeit God's kingdom while the rest of the world receives it. See, we got this thing going on in Christendom like we deserved it. It was all meant for us, but not for them. We don't really identify them because then we get on sketchy ground, right? Then we start thinking, oh, wait a minute. Am I one of them? Nah, that's impossible. I can't be one of them. And you can guess the change of heart in the attitude in the synagogue that day. Bam, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. How dare you skip us? How dare you? They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Understand, they were th this was a good thing that they were thinking they were doing, right? This is what good Jewish people did to heretics. 
who blasphemed, right? They take them outside the city and kill them. They were protecting their community from a bad person. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way, which is incredible. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. Here's the issue. Here's what's at stake. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and not just the Son of Joseph, he has the power to share with us the one thing we all need most. We all need most is freedom. Freedom from the ills and the woes that this world weighs us down with. But the question is, are my neighbors worthy and therefore worth the effort to share the good news that God's kingdom has arrived? That's kind of what we wrestle with. Are they, are they worth me giving up my afternoon? Are they, are they, are they worthy? And I think this is the question that we have to wrestle with. Are they worthy? Are they worth my efforts, my money, my time? Super important to note here in closing. He doesn't complete the Isaiah text. He just quotes part of verses 1 and 2 from chapter 61 and only part of verse 6 from chapter 58. If he had completed the chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it ends with a day of vengeance. Jesus stops. He doesn't include that. It's odd. See, but for Jesus and his understanding of his role in ministry, this was an announcement. He was making an announcement of hope and not judgment. So Jesus deliberately downplays the judgment part. I want to say that again. Jesus deliberately downplays the judgment part. He's all about the compassion part. That's the part that he sees his role as being and his ministry as being, and that's the way we need to understand our role and our ministry. We are not about the judgment. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is compassion, to love people. That's what we're called to do. We need to leave the Holy Spirit something to do. He's got to have something to do. Let him do the convicting. It never comes well from our mouths. Never comes well from our mouths. But from the Holy Spirit's mouth, I don't know how. I just, it just, it happens. Makes you think, are we doing it right? (laughs) Did we miss something? In closing, there's a film I always showed my teenagers when I was a youth pastor. It was called Noah's Ark. And no, it's not from the Bible. Noah, this guy named Noah Snyder, professional surfer from the East Coast. Um, pretty big name, followed him for a little while, my own youth. Um, he accepted Christ at some point in his professional career. Um, and he decided, I cannot leave my friends in their current predicament. Right? He, had, he had been winning contests, and he had been going out and, and partying and, and waking up in the morning thinking, what in the world am I doing? My life is going down the toilet. I'm doing great things in people's eyes, but my life has no real purpose, meaningful. Winning surfing awards, that's not meaningful. That was like a lot of fun. But he, he reached a point, and he decided, I'm not going without my friends. And the whole rest of the film 
It's because he knows these other surfaces. He knows the battles that they face. He knows the emptiness. And so he just quietly began to speak into all of his buddies on the East Coast surfing circuit. Lo and behold, he turns the entire East Coast surf, the majority of it, to Christ. Right? They have Bible studies in the morning before their surf competition. That is unheard of in the surfing community. You don't do that. But Noah Snyder decided, I'm not going without my friends. They're too valuable. They're too worthy. And if I'm worthy of Christ, then they are too. Would you bow your heads? Father, we love you. We love what you do for us. We do. But Father, as human beings, you know we tend to want to own it and make it ours and nobody else's. But Father, love doesn't work that way. You try to hold on to love and it, it dissipates. But when you give it away, it grows and it grows and it grows. So Father, help us to love better. Help us to love more completely, more compassionately, less judgmentally. Father, help us focus on that. Father, we'll leave the rest to your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.